0: Lost Talk Radio Welcome to Spiritual Insights with Charlotte Spicer Spirituality and Metaphysics Talk Radio Featuring A Course in Miracles Dream Interpretation Guided Meditation And the Psychic and Metaphysics Free For All It's your opportunity to consult with a professional psychic medium. Discuss past lives, the chakras, and more. We are non-denominational, and there are no limits. Want to change your life? You must first change your mind. 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 No matter your religious structure, cultivate peace in your reality through self-awareness with an authentic spiritual teacher. And now, your host. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Our guest today is Amy Wright Glenn, author of the book Birth, Breath, and Death, Meditations on Motherhood, Chaplaincy, and Life as a Doula. The birth of a new baby reminds us of the newness of this life's journey. They embody original innocence, trust, and growth on a plane of existence full of wondrous lessons. Death reminds us that change is unavoidable, that each ending contains within it its own new beginning. From our first inhalation to our last exhalation, we experience growth and transformation in a dualistic world attempting to find our balance and a sense of inner peace amidst the polarities of expansion and contraction. With each breath, we experience the polarized dance of joy and sadness, pleasure and pain, ego and humility, laughter and tears, within and without. And always there is learning on this journey, from understanding our true natures to feeling compassion for others. It is up to us to release all resistance and breathe each experience in, to develop a posture of union and infinite universal love. Our guest today will describe her journey to embrace all of these life experiences and she recounts them in her book. Welcome to the show, Amy. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you so much, Charlotte. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Oh, I love the book. And it just goes to prove that a book doesn't have to be big to be profoundly spiritual and impactful. You did a fabulous job with this. I thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: Thank you for taking the time to read it and to invite me into your show. This is
0: this is a real joy. Thank you, all. So well, you're quite welcome. Welcome. First, I'd like to dedicate the segment with your blessing, and I'd like to dedicate it to your husband, your son, and all those you've helped embrace life on its own terms. Is that okay? Yes, please do. Thank you so much. Okay. Consider it done. In the book, you discuss your husband, Clark, and your son, Tabor, and it's a beautiful journey that you take the reader on from early childhood till now. Let's start with early childhood. You grew up in the Mormon church. Tell us what it was like to feel so different from your family and your community at such a young age.
1: Well, this is such a good question, and I think so many people are born in faith traditions that they really resonate with and that really work for their life journey. And that wasn't the case for me. I think as a young girl, I didn't know anything else, so I embraced Mormonism fully. I embraced the vision of my parents fully. But once I started to have my early... Teen experiences, even pre-teen experiences, that were beginning to bring me into literature that cl- helped me question the framework and ideas that were outside of the norm. I found myself gravitating to the edges of the box that I was placed in, and it was a beautiful tradition. Don't get me wrong; I, I don't hold high feelings for the Mormon Church, but I did start to question it, and it didn't start. It didn't start till my early teens, like uh, 13, 14. But when they when those questions arose, they were they were strong, they were vivid, and they weren't easily silenced. So uh, I found that my early teen years in the women's Church were really tumultuous and difficult in comparison to the my childhood, where that's all I knew, and I embraced it because that's what was given, and it was given with love. So it wasn't a tradition that was forced upon me, but so when right. I started to question it. Then I, my mind and heart came alive, and I was drawn to explore different traditions
0: outside of the Mormon one. Mm. Well, I had the same, a similar experience. It started a lot younger than thirteen or fourteen. Uh, my first three years in school, were I was born into Catholicism, uh, so I can certainly resonate with that. But that started in first and second grade with asking questions that they would prefer not be asked or weren't prepared to answer. So I I spent a lot of time with Mother Superior (laughs) for a while. Um, Some of my listeners have already heard that story, so I won't go into that again. But I do understand, and they did try to work with me. But eventually, something happened that I just didn't want to focus on that. I wanted to learn more and expand outside the walls of religious structure. You had an experience you write about in the book where there was a declaration made by a Mormon apostle and that served as your catalyst to stop attending church. Could you tell us about that and what he said?
1: Well, there was there were a lot of rules in my family about church attendance. And so when I, when I did miss church, either because I didn't want to go or because I slept in, I, there was a, a punishment or a consequence, and that meant not having the privileges throughout the rest of the week of being able to connect with friends or use the family phone. This was before cell phones. So... Going to church had a lot of um, there were a lot of situations involved if you missed and and yet as I said to the question I I didn't want to go I wanted to have the freedom to try other churches or to to uh, explore different literature and my my um, feelings were amplified when this certain statement was made and it it was basically a statement saying that. In the Mormon Church, there wasn't room for intellectuals, feminists, or homosexuals. That these three things were constituting the greatest threat to the Mormon Church. And I knew at that time, this was in my early teen years, as I mentioned, that, that I didn't consider intellectualism, certainly, something to be a feared, you know, to be afraid of. And feminism, I was thinking, I can't imagine that's too much of a problem. And I never did buy into a fear of homosexuals. So I just found myself repeating that phrase to my mom saying, look, If these are the three greatest steps to this tradition, I don't think this is the right one for me. (laughs) Mm. So it was a hard time. It was a a really tumultuous time in my family relationships between myself and my parents because I was the oldest of seven, and they were really worried that if I started Mm. to leave the fold, you could say that my younger siblings might follow my path.
0: Yes. Mm, Interesting. Did they?
1: I don't think they followed me, but I think the fact that I did end up leaving the church and, uh, and finding a, a different tradition, one that brought me great happiness, gave some of my siblings, some of them stayed women, the ones that didn't, a model of the possibility that perhaps you can find happiness and spiritual fulfillment on other paths. It doesn't only exist here. And, and so I don't know if I could say it followed my fitness steps, but they certainly had an example of my life to look at, to say, huh, it's possible to be spiritually conscious,
0: progressive,
1: and open-hearted,
0: and not be and, and gather the courage to expand in other areas. Well, I think that, that's a great example for everybody. Oh, thank you. Yeah, my parents at the time
1: were, were not
0: so sure of this. <laughs> of course not. No, that's, that's um, no doubt a very upsetting time where someone is going against the grain. But eventually, you made it into college, and then you found yourself in a new quandary. You found yourself trapped between the faith that you love and the atheistic atmosphere of college. While you were able to study philosophy and religion, it didn't really fill the void of not having a spiritual practice. So my question is, how were you able to fill that void to enrich your spiritual life?
1: This is such a great question. I remember so well the heartache that I felt attending the first lecture in my humanities course on biblical criticism and and exploring the Bible with an entirely new lens of perspective, which was historical and it wasn't in any way informed by any theological vision. I had never approached the text that way. It was really approaching it as historical literature. And while it was fascinating to me, intellectually, my heart was just Pounding in my chest, I actually left the lecture, walked out of the building, down into the canyon at Reef College, where the trees were, you know, beautiful and green, and the wind was blowing, and I just sat down and wept. And I wept because I—it was like the loss of—I knew it was the final, in some sense, loss of that world vision of my childhood that I had mm. any questions, but to, to lay it to rest—it was a grief. And, and yes, there wasn't much to fill the void there. I, I think my student life was really rich with good friends, but there wasn't a deep spiritual practice at Reed that was present on campus. And, and so I thought i off campus. I went to a Unitarian church in Portland, Oregon, and found a real home there intellectually, because like at Reed, you were invited to question, encouraged to question, but there was a deep sense of heart and song and ritual and community connection. And then, of course, I had the practice of uh, closing my eyes and meditating that I was starting to cultivate more and more, and that brought me a great deal of peace. I even formed a meditation group on campus for students to come and meditate with me. I think in my own way to offer a place on campus where people could experience spirit without it being
0: threatening to the intellect. Very important. Well, while we're on the subject, I want to mention to the audience about the education that you got um, in addition to your dual and teaching work, you're a scholar of comparative religion and philosophy with over 20 years of yoga and meditation teaching experience. You've also earned your Master's of Arts in Religion and Education at Columbia University. You taught for 11 years in the Religion and Philosophy Department at the Lawrenceville School in New Jersey. You were the recipient of the Dunbar-Aston Jr. Chair for Teaching Excellence, and presently you're a, a yoga, prenatal yoga teacher. You're also the voice for Motherhood, Spirituality, and Religion for Philly.com. You blog for Attachment Parenting International, Dual Trainings International, and The Birthing Site, and you're a regular columnist for Holistic Parenting Magazine. So even though this is your first book, Birth, Breath, and Death, you've certainly come a long way from that 14-year-old girl who had so many burning questions inside you.
1: I did. I did. And I think studying religion was, deeply connected to my Mormon heritage, and, and to hear you say all those things, it just brings me a great sense of humbleness. I'm so grateful for the life that I've been able to lead where my passion to study religion has been at the forefront of my professional world. Many people have a passion for something, but it never becomes their vocation, and through my passion for studying comparative religion and philosophy, I've been able to make a, a living and make a life. and and I, it still informs how I write my articles for these various publications. I I love it. I love studying religion, and it deeply connects because I a big part of the rule of the the landscape of my house when I started to question was I couldn't question in front of my siblings, and I wasn't allowed to question uh, about God, you know, in front of them. And so I felt stifled in my home, even though my parents encouraged me to think freely to some extent, not being able to talk about it in an open way it was hard and it's you no know, coincidence that, you know, a few years down the line I'm majoring in religion and philosophy and then teaching comparative sort of religion and philosophy to the very age group that represented the time in my life where I started questioning. And I'm encouraging their questions I and mean, making an open, safe space for them. I think it's really fascinating to see that circle come around.
0: I think it's terrific. And I also noticed, I think... many of us tell me if you agree that when we're born into a religion that we feel stifles us and then in whatever manner we manage to break free of those uh chains for lack of a better word Um, my father lost his job and we couldn't afford the tuition so that got me out of there and that was my um that was a relief for me but then you know as you grow up you have this quest that you're on this mission that you're on and then there's another pivotal moment where you don't push as hard, you learn to kind of relax, and you had a moment like that, you described it on page 13, you described a deeply moving shift in your awareness during a meditation. Could you briefly describe that experience for the listeners? I'd be happy to. I was
1: introduced to the seated meditation practice through reading about visualization and meditation in high school, and then attending Reed, my first year at Reed, I took a yoga course, and i found that the silence at the end was just delicious. It filled my heart and body with this calm that was so powerful. And then I spent my sophomore year studying comparative religion and looking at the Abrahamic philosophies in Jerusalem. So I lived in Jerusalem when I was 19 to 20. And while I was in that city, I was invited to attend a seated meditation gathering at a woman's home and We sat outside. I remember vividly, maybe 30, 40 people sitting. The woman who led the meditation led us with beautiful words into about an hour of silence. And during that time, while I was sitting, I felt the same emotional link to the wonder of life that I had felt as a girl. And as a girl, I had called that wonder Christ. Like day had called it Henry, Father. I called it the names that women used to call. Mm-hmm, call to God. And here I am, having, you know, disassociated myself from that tradition, seeking understanding in a variety of ways, you know, living overseas, sitting in silence in this woman's backyard, and suddenly my heart just broke open, and I felt the same feeling of, of devotion I felt as a girl, but I didn't label them with those same names, and it, really was very moving to realize these feelings don't have to be labeled. They're the essence at the heart of life. And Mm in many traditions, label them. And it's not necessarily wrong, but I felt so free to embrace what I call Jesus and see this power as something beyond the word Jesus, if that makes sense. It was just Mm -hmm. the most powerful a moment for me in my late teens that I can describe in a spiritual sense, the hour of silence, had tears pouring on my face. I just like two pieces of my life merged together, my childhood and my intellectual quest. Next, in that moment.
0: Beautiful experience. Well, that of course took you further than your case with a deeper understanding of your true nature, of course, and um, Jesus. And then, eventually, the idea of becoming a doula presents itself to you. Explain for those who don't know what a doula is and then also how it differs from being a midwife. That's a great question. I think it's easy to
1: confuse the two because they're both associated with providing
0: care for women through labor
1: and delivery. I I like the Greek term doula, which means woman servant, a woman who serves another woman, and it's particularly meant in labor, in childbirth. And so a doula serves the mother emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically to the extent of providing comfort measures. But the midwife, while she's aware of that holistic vision, is primarily tasked with the safety the physiological well-being of the delivery, right. the safety of the baby and the mother together, so a, a much more medical role. And okay. doers don't go to um, RNs, you know, nursing school or midwifery school or medical school. We are trained in a variety, of many organizations to certify doers. We're trained to offer the best practices research provides to enable a mother to soften and relax and breathe and be present to the wit, the wonder of this birth, the pain and the wonder of it. Because the more relaxed the body is, and the more open the mind is, and the more focused she can be with the breath, the easier birth will be. The hormones of birth are interrupted by fear. And just like a mammal, any mammal, if a, if a kangaroo or a bear or a, a cat is suddenly struck with great fear in the middle of labor, it interrupts the process. So a human being is no different, and a jeweler is... Is like a safeguard to put fear to the side and help the mother be present with the intensity of birth and embrace her power in a way that says, "This is safe. This is intense, but you're safe." <laughs> and I was called to that. I was called to that word in a deep way, and it built deeply upon my my interest in philosophy and religion, which is all about F, what matters most in human life. And being with someone through birth is so profoundly deep and so profoundly awe-inspiring that it, it profoundly alters, I think, the consciousness of those present, if you're open to experience the wonder of a human form coming out of another human form.
0: It's just magical. Mm. I like the way you state in the book, uh is work to ensure that the mother-child relationship gets off to the best possible start. I like that. Thank you. So how, so how do you become one? Uh, you, your sister was having a baby, and she asked you to kind of lend her moral support, but this led to a whole new career.
1: <laughs> it, well, it led to a, a new aspect of my own career. I didn't leave teaching behind, but I did add on to it through a piece. It's it's like, um, let me back up and say, you could study fire and how fire works, but if you don't actually stand by a fire, you don't know the, the power and the heat that comes from it. So teaching philosophy and religion can feel sometimes like describing fire. We have a group of students, we're talking about very important things, there's all these different terms you can memorize and learn, and different names of men and women through history who have had these experiences. Are my students having those experiences? Am I? Even mm-hmm. so we're talking about fire, these transformative moments, but is it like drawing fire on the wall as opposed to standing by the, the flames? And I responded to birth work and death work because I knew I needed to get close to the heat again. I needed mm-hmm. to not just read about powerful things; I needed to see them and be transformed. Because then, as a teacher, I carry it with me even more deeply. So yeah. I I came to do a work to my sister. She was going through a divorce. She came to live with myself and my husband. This is before I became a mother. She asked me to be her birth partner since her husband was out of the picture. And I was scared, I don't know, at the time I knew very little about birth. And the librarian at my school said, okay, well, let me suggest a doula. This is a really great thing to consider. And once she described how doulas support women and support their birth partner and provide all this comfort care, I thought, oh, we need one. I told my sister, I'm going to get a doula for you. It will be wonderful. She said, no, I don't need one. I have you. And I said, well, I need one. (laughs) Right. So, so I'm so glad we did because it did lead to a profound shift in in my life when I saw what Gloria did for us. I thought, kind of, Oh my goodness, this is amazing! And the midwife turned to me at one point and said, "You would be a great duelist and that was kind of the seed for me of, hook, okay, you know,
0: that's my calling. One it. of them.
1: That's my yeah. the calling. Yeah, for okay. sure. That was well, the calling for that. Well,
0: okay. And the phone rang several times for you throughout your lifetime, and we'll explore those. But my next question is a two-part question. What are the benefits, although you have described quite a few already and how women are supported on what I like to call on the show PEMS levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. Here's my question. What are the benefits of having a doula? And what are the benefits of being a doula? Hmm. Two different kind of questions. Right. Well,
1: the benefits of having a doula have been scientifically proven through peer-reviewed studies on the impact of labor, change labor support for women. Women who have doulas are less likely to have a cascade of interventions than women who don't. Women who have doulas have shorter labors than women who don't. Women who have doulas, even if they have a traumatic birth physically, will remember it in a different way because they were supported emotionally and spiritually. Birth can be something women develop post-traumatic stress disorder from if it's not handled well. There are women who walk around America having experienced a very traumatic birth, and, and they have fear of being pregnant again, and they have nightmares about it, and I'm not making this up. It can be an experience if you're not supported well, but please just thought. And it prevent, as much as possible... That scar from touching the emotional and spiritual and mental centers. Now the body may have gone through surgery and you have a physical scar from a C-section, but if a doula was with you through that journey, it's remembered differently. So I tell women, I'm a, I'm a safeguard for your memory of birth. I protect birth memories and I offer my whole heart to you for however long it takes. I will be there. And the benefit of being a doula is, I think, far beyond any career. Um, calling, I think it's soul work. I think women who are called to that work are, are enriched on a level that's... It's like being, in some sense, called to, to holding the hands of the dying. It's sacred work to stand at the doorways of birth and death and be present to a human being who's opening to those
0: doorways. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Wow. I kind of needed this. That's magical. It really is. I am... Um... I was there for uh, my, the death of my mother. Hmm. And as I, was, I was in a very good space, so it wasn't traumatic for me. It was my prayer that it wouldn't be very traumatic for my siblings. It was the most profound moment of my life, her death. And mm-hmm. the elation I felt that she was free of a body that didn't function very well. I can never look at it the same way, so I can appreciate your new perspective on these two hook-ins that we experience at the beginning and end of our lives. Well, before we move on, how would you suggest someone begin the process of becoming a doula? Who certifies doulas? And could you provide some stepping stones to case someone is feeling a calling to do this as well? I'd be happy to. There
1: are numerous organizations that certify doulas. Some of them are very small, and some are nationwide or international. The largest is the Duelers of North America, which is the Dual Organization of North America, donor, and that organization is international. But just because it's large, it shouldn't be the default uh, organization to go to. I think I think it's really wise for a woman who's interested in doing dual work to look over the various requirements each organization um, presents to their candidates to say, we will certify you if you need this, this, and this. And and then really think, what will serve that woman's journey to becoming a jeweler? Some of the organizations, like uh, there's one called Dueler Training International, they do an incredible mentorship for nine months when you're mentored in your work, And that's an amazing mentorship. It's also more expensive than some of the other trainings. So I would say to become a jeweler, it's not actually required to be certified. You can work as a doula without certification, but more and more hospitals and birth centers are asking for certification because that means that you've met a certain level of professional um, expertise and Mm -hmm. that you're taking your work seriously enough to have engaged in a community of learners, to learn best practices, to read certain books, to have been mentored, to have been tested. I think it's wise to be certified for those reasons. And I I would go online and type in jewer organizations, certified jewel organizations, and begin to purchase some of the books that are on those reading lists and network with local jewelers. The best thing to do if you're interested in being a jeweler and you're listening to me now is to find a jeweler in your area, sit down with her and hear her story. And then sit down with another jeweler and hear her story. Because we learn best from human experience and contact. And then mm-hmm. and
0: then move from there. Because each individual duer is a wealth of knowledge on this. Really Okay, that sounds great. So if anybody is interested in helping women through this process, very rewarding from from reading your book, you can see how it's touched your life. I want to move on to your yoga practice. And for years of practice, you did become a certified yoga instructor. How easily did yoga and yoga philosophy blend with your practice as a doula? Was that a smooth transition and blending?
1: Correct. Well, my yogic tradition, my training in yoga, existed before my experience of working with my sister and then becoming a guru. I started to sit, as I mentioned before, in my early years in college, and even before leaving Utah, I started to the, the practice of closing my eyes and working with breath and visualization. And when I went to college, I was drawn just innately to studying religion, and particularly the traditions of India, and my... my thesis at the college was on a tradition called Advaita Vedanta, which is a philosophy in Hinduism that's very much connected to yogic practice. And I went to India three different times in, as part of my studies to study at a meditation center in Himachal Pradesh, which is in northern India. And I studied with a the teacher there and with the whole community of practitioners who studied the Gita and Advaita Vedanta and mm-hmm. all these traditions of yogic philosophy and, and meditated. Daily for many hours, actually, many people sat in sat many many hours a day, and I found it. I found it like coming home, to be honest. Uh, after that experience in Jerusalem, where I felt so open to silent meditation and so free of the need to label it, I found the meditation practices at the heart of yoga to be so so organic to my being. And and when I became a guru, I just drew upon them like a tree might drop nutrients from the earth, I found that being a doula was like teaching a yoga class for 12 hours or 20 hours or 25 hours because doula work is very much about breath, presence, and patience. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And yoga practice is a lot about breath, presence, and patience. I've never been gone to the yogic traditions that are fast or or even in a heated room or really quick poses. I've always been gone to the more meditative, hold the posture, dive into the sensation be patient with what unfolds. You know, that meditative practice of sitting and moving is very much like being with a woman through birth
0: because it takes
1: time for a baby to come out of the body in most cases and to be present with the mom and with every breath, every contraction. It's a lot like teaching a yoga class the last 30 hours.
0: (laughs) Wow. And so you wind up spending quite a number of hours with the mother and obviously your service in this regard is one of, giving a lot of love, and you're, and you're giving on so many levels. You mentioned on page 28 the importance of balancing between giving and receiving. So I would ask you explain the renewing power of rhythm, ritual, and rest that you so eloquently spoke about in the book. I have to give credit where credit is due.
1: The three R's, rhythm, ritual, and rest, comes from the work of a really famous doula named Penny Sinkin. She coined that phrase, the three R's of labor, and in order to to be with a woman through labor and to be a laboring woman, one needs to rest between contractions, she would say. Let the body rest and heal. Find a rhythm to help you move through the hours of labor, which would be, you know, drinking water and walking and resting and, and swaying the body and massage, finding rhythms that are repetitive and soothing and then the ritual piece when the contraction is actually happening, to have something that you can do that will focus the mind. Like it might be counting, it might be repeating a mantra, it might be looking into the eyes of your beloved, it, it might be just moving the hands a certain way, a ritual that you repeat. I I find those three eyes very helpful in life. That right has a rhythm, the days have rhythms, rituals march time is special and And even difficult times can be, brought to healing through ritual. And then there's rest, the need for sleep, the need to rejuvenate. So I give a lot as a mother, as a doula, as a writer. But in silent meditation every day, I rest. And there's that
0: rejuvenation. And recharge. Excellent. A few moments ago, you said something very interesting in that when you are performing um, as a doula, you are helping a woman go through what can be a very traumatic experience of expelling a person out of their body, but you help them to remember that experience differently. And I love the way you said that, because in the book you talk about the power, the healing power of dance, and how the body holds memory, which is something I don't often get to explore on the show, depending on the topic of conversation. So let's talk about how the body holds memory. And of course that would be the one of the benefits of yoga is to exercise those memories out of the cells, and then tell me about the healing power of it. Of which I I do these things, but I want you to say I want to hear sure, your sure. work. I'll do my best.
1: I, I should back up and say that many, many births are not traumatic. But if there is a complication in birth that's difficult and and scary a doula helps buffer that for the mom. So she will remember it differently than if she had no support. You know, if a husband was eyes staring, you know, like a deer in the headlights, and a mother who is frightened, that's a hard memory to have. But if you had a calm presence of a doula who could look both people in the eyes and say, I know this is hard, but I'm with you 100%, and we will find a way through this, that's, that's the buffer, right? And in, in the case of being able to practice, yoga and create new memories for the body when fear hits the body it's easy for the stomach to tighten it's easy for the throat to tighten it's easy for the face to tighten and to practice a hard pose a pose that's challenging it's not causing trauma but that's bringing up some fear maybe and to practice softening around it and backing off a bit from the edge and softening around it making friends with fear letting the body process fear differently so that it's not held in the cells and, the, and you kind of retrain that parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of us that's more unconscious, to respond with a, at least a moment of openness before the cleanse, right? Right. <laughs> the hope is that through yoga, you can help train the body to, to adapt with patience and calm, even when situations normally would trigger it into fear. And sometimes you do need to learn and move into a new situation, but you can do so with a breath that's conscious, at least, you know, a conscious breath. Right. And the body, for me, has been one of the best teachers I've had because I I know for a fact that the memories that have been challenging in my life have been stored maybe in my neck or my belly. And putting on music, making sure the house is still and quiet, and I put on some of my music that opens my body to dance. I feel I can dance out those energies of frustration or anger or fear. And it may not fully move the knot out of my neck, but it definitely opens the heart to feel. And sometimes tears will come just from moving freely and letting the body have the chance to release what it holds. Because it's amazing the body will hold for us the hard things in life. But if we give the body a chance to unwind and move and breathe and dance, in my situation. That's what I find most helpful. It's amazing that I can come back to a breath
0: that's steady, even if I've just been to something difficult. Yeah. Interesting. What I want to do is take a short commercial break, and when we come back, I'd like to talk about your journey into Chasun's Flea, okay? That sounds wonderful. Thank you. Okay. We'll be right back. Right after these messages, do not go away.
1: So, Jacqueline. Yes, Mom? I wanted to talk to you about something, and... Oh, wait. Hold on. I just got a text. Oh, wait, Mom. I just got a message. So many comments on my comment. Hey, Johnny. Check out my Please. videos, You Mom, right? How many videos?
0: This weekend, what? Unplugged. Getting closer to nature can get you closer to your family. To find the forest nearest you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ag Council.
1: Today in school, I learned a lot. In chemistry, I learned that no one likes me. In biology, I learned that I'm fat, I'm stupid. In English, I learned that I'm disgusting. And in gym, I learned that I'm pathetic and a joke. The only thing I didn't learn in school today is why no one ever helps.
0: Kids witness
1: bullying every day. They want to help, but they don't know how. Teach them how to stop bullying and be more than a bystander at stopbullying.gov. A message from the Ad Council.
0: And we're back, everyone. We're here with Amy Wright Glenn, author of Birth, Breath, and Death, Meditations on Motherhood, Chaplaincy, and What is it all Amy, tell me how and when chaplaincy enters the picture.
1: I was teaching in the Religion and Philosophy Department at the Lawrenceville School, and I taught courses on myth and ritual that, in particular, dealt with rituals around dying and the meaning. of of the afterlife in a variety of mythic systems around the world. And I also taught courses on ethics, and I usually integrated a unit on questions around dying and ethics, questions like euthanasia, questions relating to mm-hmm. end-of-life care. So I was thinking about death a lot in my academic world. And I remember walking with a friend in Newport, Rhode Island, years and years before I became a teacher at Lawrenceville, and meeting a friend of hers who was a chaplain for the U.S. Army. And when this woman described what she did, I remember a light bulb going off in my mind thinking, that interesting. That's really interesting. I like that. And that little seed stayed there, that was it called, germinating for many years. And at Lawrenceville, when I was studying so much about end-of-life care and the dying process and different visions of the afterlife, I found that she started to speak to me. And I researched uh, about clinical pastoral education, which is the formal training I did to become a hospital of and found that just 45 minutes up the road at a major hospital in New Jersey, they had a program. So I applied. I was gratefully accepted. I went part-time at Lawrenceville, so I could do this. And I took a, a smaller load of classes, and I told my students that I'm starting a uh, nine-month training. And it was Really, one of the most profound years of my life because their training was extensive. It was fantastic. It was very much like group therapy on many levels. It was very rigorous. It involved many hours at the hospital. I saw many deaths. I saw many families go through deep grief. And I was with people also before surgery that were important and offering support and kindness to people of all faith or no faith. I mean, I was just drawn to this work in a deep way. And it informed my teaching profoundly, too, because I could come back and then carry with me the wisdom gained from first-hand experience of what is happening ethically and medically mm-hmm. and religiously around death in America right now from a major hospital in New Jersey. Right.
0: And it's important. I, I can see how important that process is. In the book, you talk about how... Um, your training was similar to being in group therapy because it was so important that you heal your own wounds so that you could attend to other people's emotional wounds.
1: Right. Now, I, I should say it wasn't formal group therapy, but it was structured very pointedly to help each of us see that. So we were very much encouraged to explore and expose the places in our lives where death had left an imprint or the fear of death or unresolved family issues around us or loss um, were carried and because we could easily project them onto situations without even fully understanding what we were doing if it was unresolved. So I, I loved the chance to do some of that healing work, and I was very grateful for the group and the, the insight they gave me in the process. I loved that chain. It was fantastic. I was very much moved by how it was structured, and I, I can't speak more highly of the staff there at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Brunswick It was incredible.
0: No doubt. Well, you write about the importance of being compassionately open while honoring your edge, and you tell this amazing story about a man who you were invited to a hospital room where the mother was basically dying, but... Um, she had a lot of medication in her system. She was not coherent. She was talking a little bit of gibberish. Could you tell us the story about the man who asked that his mother be and how it made you hit your edge? (laughs) Yeah, it did. It's important for chaplains to serve people of all
1: faith or no faith, but to do so in a way that's authentic. And every chaplain comes from his or her own tradition. And for me, Unitarianism is a tradition that's very open. So I don't have too many edges compared to Let's say if I was an ardent Protestant, I may not want to repeat the Hail Mary with a Catholic patient who resigned. Because I don't pray to Mary as a Protestant if I was an ardent Protestant. But I could be present with her and compassionate with her while she repeated it. Or encourage another family member to repeat it. So everyone was always bumping into their edges, and we talk about this a lot in group. And I didn't bump into too many, but this story I did. I mean, when I had a, a young man tell me his mother was possess by and he wanted me to perform an exorcism... I think my jaw probably hit the floor. I just wasn't even sure what to say. First, I don't believe that's the reality. I think she's dying of cancer, and this son didn't really want to see it. And then I don't even know how to pretend to do something like that. I don't even know how to pull things on somebody I don't even believe. You know, i was just like, oh, I have hit my edge so much. <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing I can do for you except ask you to contact your home church and find the prayer group that supports you or maybe get you some holy water if you want to try to do this yourself or I, I called another chaplain I said I need some support I just can't serve the family and when the woman who was dying's sisters came who didn't share the same philosophy they had been really frustrated with his approach and so there was family tension too it. it was a complicated situation and I share that story because it was a place where I was vulnerable and I as a, a chaplain hit into some judgment and I remember being Change. You know, you, you approach with compassionate softness to honor your edge. It doesn't mean then judge the other person because they don't share your edge, right? It right. was tricky. It was a powerful experience for me.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I have to deal with that as a spiritual counselor. I, it's my job to meet them where they are. So some people subscribe to some beliefs and not others or some truths and not others. And I even have some atheist clients so then I can speak to them from a psychological or scientific perspective mm-hmm. to get them the help they need and be able to speak the language that they will best understand. So I realize how lucky sure. that can be. I'm um, just sure. curious. Are there other doulas who also work with the dying? Is there a need for this? That's the question I think
1: about every day. I I know there are. There, there's some people who write right. about dou- death doulas. In Europe, that's a term that's being used more and more in the UK, death doulas. And it's basically a doula-like training for hospice care. And I, I know doulas encounter death. Sometimes there's stillbirth, and occasionally there's maternal death through birth. And I believe, personally, that all doulas would benefit from the type of training that people at the end of life receive, professionals who work at the end of life. And vice versa, there's such an overlap. I've done both trainings and worked professionally in both fields, and I can tell you there's a great deal of overlap, and I'm this is, I think, one of my missions professionally right now is to expose this overlap and encourage people to nurture it. I've been invited to speak at the Midwife Alliance of North America's annual conference in October this year in St. Louis. And my whole topic is about midwifery across the life continuum. What we can learn, those of us who work with birth, what can we learn from those who work with the dying? And there's not too many of us trained formally in both. There really aren't too many. But they do exist. And I want to see those numbers increase.
0: I think it's yeah. vital. I would agree, but I think that it might, you know, touch on people's comfort zones. It'll get them to their edge. Maybe some people uh, would prefer to focus on the joy of a new life rather than the sadness of a life that is ending or transitioning into the next. Maybe it depends on that person's emotional and spiritual fortitude and their death of understanding of both instances in a human life, do you think?
1: Yes, of course. So I I agree. I just, I have a passion for this, and I think there's a great overlap. And even the doula who's gone solely for joy may, in a long-term career, encounter the death of the child. And is she trained to hold space for that? How has she been trained to work with family as they grieve that terrible loss? I right. think being trained around death, Even if they don't plan to do anything with the dying formally, they'll prepare list for those strange and difficult situations.
0: Mm. And I would assume that being a bearing witness to a situation like that, somewhere in there, there's an inherent danger of uh, personalizing that experience in some way. Is that a real danger?
1: I think that's something that's true for all of us, drawn to the, to be witnesses for deep transformative work, you know, to to be called like you are to be a spiritual guide. And I think for, for me, working with the dying or the birthing, it's easy to project your own stuff onto powerful situations because that helps you name it and feel like you have a hold on it. Because it's so intense. And a huge part of both change is to step back. Remember, this is not your birth. This is not your death. Even if a person wants, uh, for instance, there are people who prefer who have everything possibly done to maintain their physical body
0: existence. Even if
1: they're dying, they would like that heart to be pounded to start eating again. And, and it's hard to see an old person's body being pounded with those intense paddles. And, and yeah. I've seen it, but I know it's it just their will. It's a tricky thing. It's a really tricky thing because not everyone in the family sometimes supports it. And the hospital staff, there's a weariness to performing these extraordinary means of reviving the body when you know death is happening, that dying isn't the illness, right? Dying is part of life. But this approach to approach death like it's an illness can be so tempting because we have so many medicines <laughs> to start it. So it's easy to project one's will part of softening and meditating and holding true to the trainings of both Gina guru and a Kaplan has to do with empathetically making space for another.
0: Hmm, absolutely. And now, uh, moving forward through time, now you're a mom.
1: I am. I love it. I love Do you it. even
0: have words to describe how the stage of your journey has opened your heart?
1: I've tried to put them in words. I've written a lot about it. I wrote this book, you know, inspired by my son. and It's the, the profound love that moves through my being as I was mm-hmm. in this stage as a mom. I think this type of love could transform the world. If if we could just get a sense, uh, as a human race, about the depth of a mother's love, we would sit for decades before we dropped a single bomb on a city, knowing that children mm-hmm. would die. I just think it could transform the world, the depth of maternal love, to transform the hearts of men and women, if we mm-hmm. could just open to it.
0: Yeah. Well, in, in your journey, whether through childhood, through college, through uh, becoming a doula, your your yogic uh, journey, and then your journey as a chaplain. Did you feel an urge or some kind of need to write about those experiences, or was it only until your son was born that you really felt a book inside of you, something new to give birth to?
1: Well, the title of this book, Earth, Breath, and Death, was a gift from my husband. He came up with that title even before I became a mother when I was doing the hospital training. I'd come home and you know, after doing a 24-48 hour shift at the hospital and say, you really need to write a book. <laughs> Birth, breath, and death Amy, that's the title. And so he gave me the title and I thought, oh no, I need years of experience before i qualify to tackle those subjects in a book form. I've always written. I have journal after journal starting since I was eight of personal writing. I, I think I have 50 something journals. But This isn't something I've ever planned to share with the world, but when I had Tabor, my son Tabor, the book was born. The the transformation that I thought I needed years and years and years to have um, percolate, it happened, it opened, the heart blew open, and I would wake up with sentences just going through my mind. I wanted to be able to do something to contribute to our family, while being able to stay home with my son, so that was also a motivation to find ways I could um give my gifts without having to go work full time outside the home. And I wrote this book while he slept. My son napped and, and then he would sleep at night and I would get up and write. And I wrote this book. It came it came through me I should
0: say. It's
1: short mm-hmm. and it's to the point and it's from the heart. Yes.
0: Yeah, less than a hundred pages, just under a hundred pages. And In the book, you go into the topic of breastfeeding and outline a few of the uh, misperceptions. And for some weird reason, the most natural thing in the world is not causing controversy. If there's anyone out there, because we're short on time, if anyone needs help or answers of any kind with regard to breastfeeding, where can they go for that help?
1: Well, the League is wonderful. You go to Facebook page Lorette League, so much information. There's a great website called Kelly Mom, K-E-L-L-Y-M-O-M. When I had any problem breastfeeding, I would go to that website, incredible information, find other women who breastfeed, trust your body, know that it is a very natural way of loving. It's very much connected to us, um, to the physical wisdom of being human. And our society has distanced itself from birth and death and breastfeeding. I it's so funny, these things that are just part of the body and and yet we sell the body and we sell breasts, you know, we sell we sell these artificial images of the body, but the true body that's born, that dies, that breastfeeds, that has sex, that cries, that dances, this is what life's about. Yeah.
0: So I honor that. I honor that. Well said. I want to read A short passage from your introduction that's SFS. Please. Okay. Starts out. My first year in college, I dreamt my father gave me the keys to the celestial kingdom. The energy around us felt calm and holy. I received his gifts with awe, respect, and gratitude. A golden ring held together the large, beautiful, and ornate keys to paradise. My father's heavenly offering rested in my hands. For some time, I examined their intricate beauty. In the dream, I gave them back to him. Dad, I said, I plan to forge my own. Well, it seems to me that you did, Amy, and you did it, I think, with a lot of grace, with a lot of heart and courage, and I think this book will open the hearts of many people, men and women. I would recommend everybody read this. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. If you want to learn more about the book, ladies and gentlemen, you want to go to her website first breathanddeath.com all written now and you can connect her at amy wright glenn or facebook or twitter wright is spelled w-r-i-g-h-t and amy wright like glenn is the full phrase so what, kind of, what are you teaching and, and where do you do it in south florida
1: we moved to south florida for my husband's work and we really come to love it beautiful living by the beach and My full-time work is nurturing my son, and in addition to that, I bring him with me, and he will say, Mommy, and he teaches yoga, (laughs) because I teach Mommy, and and Mommy and me yoga, and he's two and a half, and he knows all the songs, he knows the postures, and he runs around and plays, and then jumps next to me and starts singing, it's just a joy. I just started class this morning, actually, and we had five moms come, and they're little ones, and it was 45 minutes of joy. It's beautiful. So I teach mommy and me yoga courses, uh, classes for moms and their little ones. And then I teach prenatal once a week for second moms. And then once a month, I offer a course for couples to come and prepare for birth with me. And I use all, everything I can to drop in the best of my yoga training and the prenatal piece of Emphasizing breath awareness, and then the doula experience to give them tools that I believe will be most helpful for labor and delivery. And those are the three things I do through the month. You can go to my website and find the locations. It's all in Broward and Palm Beach County in South Florida. And I welcome all listeners from the South Florida area who have little ones or who are pregnant to go to my website, and if you feel inspired by what I've said here, to, to contact me. And come to a class, I would welcome you with open arms. It would be wonderful to to have you there.
0: Beautiful. I think it's uh, so important, especially for prenatal. Hopefully they were introduced to yoga philosophy long before their first class because that doesn't give a lot of time to kind of grow into it and really make the best use of it for the birth. But, yeah, rest, relaxation. A friend of mine who had a child told me that in the hospital she was uh, having a tough time with her labor. And the nurse, uh, very wise, told her, she says, let me tell you, hard goes through soft. A lot easier than hard goes through hard. You need to relax. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. those were very strong words. I was like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. Very, Mm -hmm. very enlightening. Well, thank you so much for coming on the air and sharing everything that you shared about your journey and your life. And for putting this beautiful book together. I really appreciate it. And I love The way you express, it's it's just a joy.
1: Thank you for your time and your talent. And for the invitation to speak, I found this hour with you to be very inspiring. Thank you, Charlotte.
0: You're quite welcome. You take care, Amy. Thank you. All right, everyone, that is our show for today. Pick up the book, Birth, Breath, and Death by Amy Ray glenn and her website, birthbreathanddeath.com. And please consider purchasing a copy of this book and donating it to a local hospice or birth center. This one simple, unselfish act could change a life. Until next time, God bless and be at peace.